Hello there, how's it going? Hope you're doing well. And more importantly, thanks for tuning into the COP26 special episode of Enlighten, the science podcast. As I speak to you now, leaders from around the globe are arriving on the shores of the Clyde to discuss what is likely to be the most pressing emergency of the 21st century, the climate crisis. And while we might question why we couldn't have just done this whole thing on Zoom rather than everyone flying into one place, at least we're finally talking about it. I'm based in Glasgow myself, and there's a real buzz about the city at the moment. It's quite exciting. Our topic this month is climate change, but rather than focus on how doomed we all are, we decided we wanted to focus on whether there are any methods humans can use to actively avert the crisis. For this discussion, we were honoured to speak to Professor Stephen Salter, Emeritus Professor at the University of Edinburgh. Professor Salter has had a long and illustrious career in climate science. If you've ever seen a wave power harvesting plant, you might be familiar with the floating actuators which sit on top of the water and harvest energy. Those are actually called salter ducks, and they're named after Stephen himself. The topic of our conversation is marine cloud brightening, which is touted as one way of reducing the impact of global warming. The idea is that by making clouds brighter, we can reduce the amount of sunlight which penetrates the atmosphere, reflecting more energy into space and cooling the Earth. It's a slightly controversial method, not because it's unlikely to work, but because it's a challenge to achieve practically. In fact, Stephen himself mentions in the interview that several colleagues from different universities have been openly opposed to the idea, and it's not something that the UK government has invested in as of yet. As a non-expert in this field, I think it sounds like it has substance, not least because it might buy us time for other more permanent methods to catch up. But if you are a climate scientist and you listen to this and think, this would never work, it's completely mental, please do reach out. I'd be happy to speak to you, and so would Stephen. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy the interview. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us this morning. It's absolutely great to have you here. You're very welcome. Would you be able to start off by maybe giving us just a quick introduction of yourself? Right. Um, I uh, had a, a, a long-term wish to design the uh, successor to the Spitfire, um, that generation, and uh, I did an apprenticeship as an aircraft fitter with a company called Saunders Row on the Isle of Wight. And uh, I worked on various things after the cancellation of the, of the wonderful airplane we were doing. It's called the SR-177. And there was some other disgraceful shenanigans going on about rivalry with the Lockheed Starfighter. So um, I was able to work on a rocket called Black Knight, and I worked on the first hovercraft as well uh, after the cancellation of the 177. But the sad thing was that we then had to make bits for bombers. And instead of defending the the, 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 the UK from wicked Luftwaffe, we were going to be making things that would bomb people, little, little girls in Moscow, and I didn't want to do that. Um, so uh, I went to university as a sort of qualified aircraft fitter and uh, I uh, didn't get a grant for reasons that I don't need to go into, which was very unusual in those days. And I was uh, therefore rather poor. And I worked as the first employee of a company called Cambridge Consultants, which is now a major international group. I was their first employee. <laughs> and did some drawings for them. And uh, I, through that connection, I was offered a job as a sort of inventor's mate to a, a very prolific inventor called Richard Gregory. And I made various astronomical instruments for him and various uh, fun ideas that he had. He moved to Edinburgh to do robotics and I came with him. And I worked in uh, the beginnings of artificial intelligence and in uh, 1968, um, and there was a terrible row between professors in artificial intelligence, and they wanted to break up the department, and I was moved to engineering uh, just at the time when people were getting worried about uh, fossil fuels running out. Um, we didn't realize that we could burn fossil fuels then, but we thought we might not have any to burn. And uh, I worked on wave energy, and we had to learn an awful lot about waves, which I didn't know. Um, and we had to build new instruments and wave tanks and things like that. 
And when we were getting the cost really very close to that of nuclear, they started falsifying the, the failure rates to make sure that nothing would ever come out of the electricity at the other end. And several orders of magnitude failure change. You know. So uh, um, wave energy came to a, a, a pr premature, I won't say end, let's say hiatus. <laughs> Uh, and I then began working on uh, the climate problem and the, uh, I'd been having an idea for trying to make the sea evaporate more quickly when there was a terrible droughts that were causing uh, political instability. And I wanted to do this by squirting seawater up into the air and letting it evaporate. And there's a sort of very high humidity layer over the sea that stops water evaporating. I wanted to punch through that. And uh, a chap called John Latham uh, heard what I was doing and asked me if I could make uh, spray for his project for making clouds whiter. And I said, yeah, no, no problem. I can easily do that for you. Uh, this was not totally accurate, <laughs> but I've been working on it since then. And we're very nearly there now. There are a lot of very difficult problems that I hadn't foreseen, but we've, I think we've identified most of them. And we are to the point where we could actually start uh, making bits for the, for the work, way to do it. And um, it is now looking increasingly urgent. Um, more every, every time you get a new meteorological observation, it's looking a bit worse than, uh, than we thought. And uh, so far, my progress to cost ratio is very close to infinity um, because we've got absolutely zero funding from, from the UK. So all the money is coming from a gullible old age pensioner. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but it's, it's um, probably more, more important than designing the successor to the Spitfire. That's a fantastic description of a, a long and illustrious career. C could I maybe just go back and ask you about something you mentioned there about, um, did you say the falsifying of um, the wave electricity? Yes, that's right. The, the, um, the, 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 they had very efficient ways of predicting the, the, the costs of it. They The cost of concrete and generators and steel and all that stuff. Um, and when we were given those, we were able to design to bring the costs right down. They started off uh, about 50 pence a kilowatt hour, which is about 10 times higher than we, the customer was paying. And we got it down to about four pence. And the rate of reduction was really very fast. It was almost a free fall. And they did things like changing the failure rates of the cables from numbers that they'd originally given and which were, which were actually um, worse than real numbers we, we get from Norway. I mean, people have been sending electricity under the sea for a long time. Mm. And uh, the, if the, the numbers that they used were applied to the cable going to Orkney, uh, it should have failed about 180 times since it was laid, and it hasn't failed once. <laughs> so you've got two orders of magnitude of distortion of the and they tried to disguise the fact that they'd done this and they wouldn't admit who'd, who'd put the number in, you know, that kind of dirty tricks. I, if, you, if you're really interested in this, and it's really rather boring, I've got evidence to the House of Lords about all this. Uh, and uh, the advantage of writing for House of Lords is that you can't be done for a libel. Uh, and uh, I, I, I've got chapter and verse and all the, the reports. The, they were very upset about a, a, a technology for controlling the power takeoff of wave device. And we had to invent new kinds of hydraulic pumps and, and hydraulic motors. And they were very hesitant about anything to do with electronics. And they said this is never going to work. Um, and it's now employing over 100 people. Uh, and it's halving the fuel consumption of earth-moving machines. Hmm. Uh, it's really quite good. So the, 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 the dirty tricks were really dirty. And also, they were so incompetently done that I wondered whether the chap was actually doing them, wanted them to be observed, so that he'd been told, kill off this project, 
and he wanted to be able to save it secretly. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's, it's that's water under the bridge now. No, that's 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 really interesting. I mean, it's quite scandalous details of the <laughs> the protectionism of a, of an industry, I guess. From yeah. so, you've obviously been working in um, climate engineering for uh, a long, long time. What was the opinion of climate change as a thing when you, when you started? Uh, does it feel like um, a consensus has now been reached? Only a few people were, were really worried about it. People like James Lovelock. Yeah. Uh, and but most people thought it was just fine. You know, all, all the company shares were, were where all our pensions went. Um, the, 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 the worry had been that there wouldn't be enough fossil fuel mm. when really there's too much. In terms of marine cloud brightening, could you maybe give us a kind of positive description about how it works, assuming that the audience uh, is unfamiliar with the topic? The, the, the chap who really started this is called Sean Toomey. And he flew into clouds and uh, measured how much sunlight was coming down from above and how much reflected light was coming up from below so he can work out the reflectivity of the cloud. And then he flew into the cloud and scooped up the drops and uh, measured how many there were in a cubic centimetre and how big they were. And he produced lots and lots of results, which led to the conclusion that it's the size distribution of the drops in the cloud that matters, uh, and if you could find a way to uh, have a lot more smaller drops for the same amount of liquid water, you get a whiter cloud. And a very useful rule is that if you could double the number of drops, the reflectivity would go up by about 0 0.05, 0.056. So double gives you another 5%. And then Nathan knew about this, and he thought that we could uh, make more drops by um, providing the tiny little fragments of salt in seawater when, when a drop of seawater evaporates at least by a little bit of salt and whether or not you can make a drop depends on uh, some work done by a chap called Kola, um, Hilding Kola and he uh, he found that you you couldn't just get a, a new cloud drop because the boat of humidity got up to 100% you had to be a bit bigger than 100% uh, to, uh, to get the nucleation started. And once it was over a, a certain size, it would then grow on its own. It didn't need another seed. And he worked out uh, how much, how big the seed had to be for different kinds of chemical materials and different well, humidities. John Latham knew all about that. Uh, and he worked out... Um, how much seawater you'd have to spray to undo all the thermal damage we've done. And he, he worked this out, and it was really surprisingly little, about 10 cubic metres of water released as the, these small drops here, this 800 nanometer drop, would, would solve the problem up to then, all the thermal damage you've done since pre-industrial times. And so he got rather excited about this. It was a, a cool, Spraying 10 cubic metres at that size didn't look to be impossible if it was going to save the world. <laughs> and uh, he then phoned me up and asked me, he'd heard about my rainmaking thing, and he, he phoned me up and asked me if I could do it, and I said yes. So that's the physics of it. The, the engineering of it uh, is really quite a lot harder than I thought. I'd been trying to do something like this, where I've got a, a, a Duras turbine, with hollow blades that has got um, an entry to the seawater below at the bottom here. And water in here will be centrifuged out. And then you can squirt it out through the trailing edge of the blade to recover the kinetic energy. And this looked really quite easy and I could make models and they worked first time. Um, but the, the difference in size of drops is, is really enormous. The best size for making the sea evaporate faster is about 30 microns compared with um, 80 nanometers, sorry, 800 nanometers, yes. Uh, and the, the first problem is how you're going to get the energy and then how you're going to filter this, the seawater. And the, um, the, the way to get the energy is pretty obviously uh, from the wind. We want to be able to do it in different places at different times. And we don't have to take fuel and food and water and things like that. So 
This is pointing very much to unmanned sailing vessels. That is the culmination of sailing vessel technology, uh, which is Cutty Sark. And I'd like you to imagine that it's three o'clock in the morning in the middle of a howling gale and it's pissing with rain and you're up here trying to take in a, tie some reef knots in the sail while this is rolling 45 degrees. Uh, and that really didn't look very good. Uh, and this, this picture here shows a sailing ship with all these sails around here. But as well as sails, the artist has put in the size of rotors that you might need to get the same thrust energy as these sails. And a chap called Anton Fletner knew about this, and uh, he got uh, two uh, ships with sa two sailing ships, and he stripped the sails of one of them and put rotors up like this instead of the sails. And they had a race between from the Baltic uh, across the North Sea to to Edinburgh, well, to Leith, uh, Leithport, and the rotor ship won the race, and. Um, then he went across to New York with it and it got there safely. And everyone was very excited about that. And they, he got orders from more bigger ones. And the 1929 depression came along and they all canceled. And the idea was to have flatten rotors uh, on a ship that's dragging big turbines through the water to make the energy. Uh, and then we would want to find a way to uh, make the spray. And then in those days it looked like we could release it from inside these spinning rotors and it come out the top. Uh, it turned out that the real problems were, first of all, to filter the water well enough. Uh, and uh, also we wanted to get a, a cleaner uh, flow path for the spray. Um, there wasn't actually nearly as much room inside there as I found I needed to for the spray mechanisms. Um, and um, the there are lots and lots of ideas about how to make the spray uh, and there's there's lots of work going on on different technologies for doing this. Uh, the one that I want to use is was uh, tested first of all by Lord Rayleigh. You can do this every time you have a shower. If you put your finger near the nozzles of the shower, you'll feel a nice steady force from one jet. And if you move it further away, you might forget, find it's beginning to ripple a little bit. You can see these sort of little bulges growing and growing and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they break up. And these are separate drops, which are still oscillating at the frequency uh, of this, this here. At the moment, people think this is the most energy efficient way to make the spray, provided that you um, can stop the nozzles that you are pumping the water through from getting clogged up. Uh, and uh, the first drawings of this were something like this, where we had uh, this very thin plate along here is a silicon wafer, 200 nanometers in diameter. And it's supported on a, 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 a grill of holes drilled in quite a thick chunk of stainless steel. And we apply uh, water pressure in here and it goes through tiny, tiny nozzles that are etched through the silicon. So it's yeah. similar to the, the you know, shower head example you used earlier, you're spraying just with a, lots of tiny holes, right? Yeah. It's just reducing your shower head by a rather large fraction. <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, so what we do is we have to uh, take sea, get seawater, clean it up, and then pump it through these nozzles. And we found that when you do this, uh, we, we can get things called pond foggers, which give you quite a small, small spray. Uh, the evaporation is very fast and it cools the, uh, the, the water uh, several degrees, sorry, it cools the air several degrees because the, the heat to do the uh, evaporation is coming under the airflow. So when the air is cooled by three or four degrees, the air falls down. It goes vertically downwards. It can't get into the sea. It just gets stopped by the sea. And the, the drops of spray in the air can't fall out of the air because the viscosity of air is so high at that size that uh, it's like having marbles in something 100 times thicker than treacle. 
So if the air can't get in the sea, then the, the spray can't get in the sea, but it can absorb heat to make up for the heat that was lost by the evaporation. And so an hour or so later, it will be able to be moved upwards. That's what they looked like uh, two years ago. And we've got just two rotors here. Uh, and we've got a mizzen mast here with a vertical line of spray heads here, with spray coming out initially horizontally, but then falling down and getting heat over here from, from the sea. And instead of the propellers that we had before, we had turbine propellers that we had underneath, we found that they were putting all of the force that was going into the, the, the turbines was in this horizontal direction, trying to stop the, the vessel motion. Uh, and so what we want to do is to get the energy for making the spray from the vertical motion of these uh, hydrofoil uh, wings here, right? Uh, and these are not, hydrofoil ships are quite popular now, but they are rigidly fixed to, well, the cheap ones, they're rigidly fixed to the hull, but you could have them hinged here, and you could have the vertical motion here being used to drive hydraulic rams on the, on the ship. And this high pressure oil can be converted to high pressure water, and we can pump that through the uh, through the, the, the wafers. I'm curious: have have any of these actually been built? Have any prototypes been uh, built yet? And we've got zero are, are there any plans to? Or is uh, it just a I'm case trying of... to get, I'm trying to raise some money to do it, mm -hmm. and I would want to build all the little details first in the lab, like the filtration and the, and the drop generation and so on. Uh, uh, I've got a list of specifications which I can give to any manufacturer of the equipment that we want to have. Um, we've got the specification, and I'd like to give them that first so that they can have a clean slate and then say, here is how uh, we might be able to do it. Can you see any mistakes or can you improve it? Uh, I'd like to have... It, 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 I know that I'm ignorant about many of the technologies that we need to know a great deal about to make it work reliably. So I hope that people will be able to improve and get rid of all my mistakes by having a clear idea of what the objective is. Uh, but there'll be chaps who work with filters all the time who will be able to get the kind of field that we need, uh, on a, uh, provided it will fit into this diameter and this length. Um, have you made any rough indication of how much a single one of these vessels would, would yes, cost to manufacture and, and what the... Right, it's very difficult to uh, get, to get a, an accurate cost of what things cost to make because they're nearly all commercial secrets. And if somebody mm -hmm. told you what thing actually did cost, they could lose their job. Right. So what you have to do is to look around for things that are as similar as possible, that are made in similar numbers. And... Uh, the best thing I could find was the, the flower class Corvettes. Uh, now, they were built in 1940 in rather a hurry, and they were meant to be cheap and nasty. Um, and uh, they cost £60,000 each in 1940. And there are ways of index linking that, uh, and that comes up to about £3 million today. Now, they paid sailors two shillings a day in 1940, and uh, a chap with a PhD was paid about £600 a year. So we're talking about 100 PhD uh, <laughs> graduates, uh, and that would, would, that's very close to three million. So that's what each one costs if we're making enough of them. Mm -hmm. And we need about 300 of them if we can put them in the right place and keep them working. Uh, which probably is a bit wishful thinking, but 300 times 3 million is 900 million. And if you borrow the money and had to put a bit of maintenance and stuff, that's about 10% of that every year to own the fleet. So we're talking about 90 million pounds to have a fleet that could offset uh, all the damage we've done so far. Well, let's say we we're going to double that because they won't be in the right place all the time and they're going to be some faulty ones. So that would be 180 million pounds a year to own this fleet. Now, if we if we go on 
burning fossil fuels, and there's a very strong evidence that we will, despite wishful thinking, we might need a thousand of them, or maybe even a few thousand of them. We'd have to agree about where and when we wanted to do the cooling. There might be some people who'd like to be cooled and some people who don't, and that's a, a major issue. But at the moment, 180 million pounds is less than the cost of the police for COP26. So if you really want an accurate number for what's it going to cost, the answer really is zero. It's the cost of this compared with ocean sea level rising. You know, it, it's, it really is, is zero. It, it's, it, I think it's the benefit ratio is 50,000. <laughs> it's an enormous benefit ratio if you can make this thing work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you were saying just then about having, was it was it a few hundred vessels? And we need, we need, Well, 300 if they were working and we're all in the right place. Let's say 500 is what you want. Let's say 600 that you want to work. So 600 vessels costing three around... Million quid, three million quid each, yeah. Yeah, so, so costing around 2 billion in total. I mean, that's it, it seems very cheap <laughs> for it. Um, that's right. Um, if you want, oh, I think this is a diagram to show you this is the CO2 concentration measured by the Scripps uh, people. It's the Keeling curve after the Charles Keeling. And I plotted it against the various COP meetings going back to Stockholm in the 1970, which is, what, 50 years ago? And you can see how this is accelerating. Right? We, we even had Paris. There's no sign of any reduction in the upward acceleration. So if you said that we're going to have this as our only uh, solution, getting to zero by, uh, they're talking about 2050, which is 30 years time, which is um, ridiculously short amount of time compared with this. If we did get to zero by then, we'd still have all the CO2 and methane and in the, atmosphere that we put up we've got there now plus what we're putting up between now and that time which is maybe double that again mm. so um, I think depending on that as your only solution is criminally stupid yeah. you need to have all the emission reduction that you can you need to find ways of sucking the CO2 out of the atmosphere and you need to do some direct cooling once you've got it all out uh, uh, or, or you've got it to an acceptable level, then we can ramp down the cooling. We don't have to keep that running if we don't want to. Or we might find that it's very nice to be able to suppress hurricanes in one place, uh, but not to cool off something somewhere else. And the great advantage of marine cloud brightening is that the clouds move, so they're smearing their effects, but you can, if you know which way the wind is blowing, you know where the cooling is going to come, and you can choose where that's to be and by the time we need we need to do this really badly our weather forecasting will be even better than it is now it's really much better now than it was a while ago uh, so we'll be able to have people who can predict what will be happening far enough ahead to get the ships moved to where they're going to do a good job mm. um, and the, the crucial things are to stop methane being released uh, to keep the ice there to keep the the currents, the, the the North Atlantic drift and the they call it the Atlantic Meridional Ocean Circulation (AMOC), we've got to keep that moving. But and we can do that by cooling the, the water on its way from the uh, the Gulf of Mexico up to Greenland. Uh, we can moderate hurricanes. If there's a nasty hot blob that appears somewhere mysteriously that we don't like, we can cool that. There's some off New Zealand sometimes. So uh, we, we really need this quite urgently. And relying on one unattainable solution is not sensible. Okay. The methane is, I think, the biggest worry. Uh, and we could get a very sudden release of methane from the permafrost. Mm -hmm. um, it's happening now, and there's enormous explosions in Siberia, uh, which is under under the permafrost methane rising to a pressure that can blow it off. Yeah. 
Mm. Uh, just just circling back a bit to to these um, to this fleet of ships. Um, you, you mentioned that they have to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I'm just wondering that the, the current design these these are unmanned and they're wind powered. So they're so wind how, powered. How, they're unmanned. Yeah. So how do you navigate them uh, into the right waters? Right. Well, I'll show you where the water's probably going to be. So we're looking for places where you've got some sunshine coming in, where you've got clean air. Uh, surprisingly, it doesn't matter very much whether the clouds are there or not, because if there are uh, the, the cloud cover is low, the lifetime of what you spray is longer. Uh, this stuff is the aerosol we make is, is so small that you can forget about it falling under gravity. It gets washed out by rain. So the lifetime of the spray is half the mean time between rain showers. But just after a rain shower, the air is very, very clean. And so it's easy to double something that's very clean than something that's already got lots of aerosol in. Mm -hmm. This is roughly where they want to be, but you, the, if the forecasters can see days ahead, where there's going to be the right conditions. They can move the, the, the flotillas around. We're going to have enough of them that will be some close to where we think we might they might, we might be. So it's not going to be desperate, um, but uh, as long as we, we move them to migrate with the seasons. And is it very important that they move? I mean, the, you know, this might be an obvious question, but if you had stationary towers um, located in some of these areas, would that Huge uh, well, you, you could use, and if there were some waves, but no wind, they will actually generate some power. They're a wave power device as well as a wind turbine. I don't think it'll be as good as a well-designed wave power device, but it won't be, it'll be something. So you can keep alive and maybe do small amount of sprays just from wave energy when they're not moving. Um, but uh, if you look at the persistence of winds in large areas of the oceans, they there's nearly always some. There's often there's too much. And uh, I'm designing them so that they will break when they're in the worst gust of a Category 5 hurricane. But not many ships survive a Category 5, not many small boats anyway, survive mm -hmm. a Category 5 hurricane. So we think that's an acceptable loss, but that's what I'm designing for. And the masts could be made out of carbon fiber, which is strong enough. I'd like to show you this picture here. This is a climate model result from some people in the Cicero laboratories in, in Norway. And most of the climate modelers have said, right, well, the sun's somewhere between 30 north and 30 south. We'll only ever treat this region here and we'll treat it all the time. Uh, and we'll then see what the models do. And an advantage of that approach is that you can look at different results from lots and lots of different models and compare them. And in fact, the agreement is not good at all. But these people said, why don't we just spray where there's uh, already got some clouds? Uh, so the model tells them where the ocean cloud regions are, and they only treat those. And this is giving you some really high cooling in the very high latitudes. Okay, so you're getting four degrees Kelvin up here, three or four degrees Kelvin up here. It's giving you fairly even cooling over the, uh, the rest of the world, but the precipitation result, all the, the, the there's more precipitation going into these blue-green bits here, uh, where they'd be very pleased to get it. Uh, these are the, the drought-stricken areas of the world. There are some reductions in precipitation, but they're all over the sea. The brown bits here are reducing. So this is a fantastically good result for a very simple uh, um, technology of just spraying just where there's clouds. <laughs> now, we might decide that we want to modify or moderate that because of the, the blue sky effect. But it shows how uh, this is a starting point for an even more sophisticated uh, uh, tactical spraying pattern, which we can do because the life of the spray is really limited to a few days, maybe a week. Uh, our rival technology is stratospheric sulfur, which is going to be putting uh, stuff up into much, much higher. Um, and then you're stuck with it for months and months, maybe even a year. 
And so you've got to be quite sure that you've got the right amount. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll be putting too much cooling in. Here, we can just one click of a mouse and you can stop them spraying and in a few days it'll all be forgotten. So we have the equivalent of a steering wheel on a road vehicle mm. rather than locking the steering. So that's the, that's the thing about movement. Uh, I'm sure there'll be people who know much more about forecasting who'll do a better job than I will, but this is, this is uh, uh, an indication. But it, it strikes me as odd that you say there's been so little investment from the UK government. I mean, do, have the UK government invested in, in any of these projects? Um, right yes, now? They, yes, they have. They, they, they put in £5 million. And uh, £1.7 million was put into uh, a, a, a project called SPICE, done by a chap called Hugh Hunt, uh, who's at Cambridge University. And they were going to... Uh, do the design for uh, stratospheric sulfur. And all they wanted to do as an initial experiment was to put a balloon up to uh, a thousand meters, I think it might have been a thousand feet, and tip out some water to see if they could manage a balloon and spraying. And uh, they would have learned a great deal of very useful things about balloons and tethers and pumping and what happened to spray. And this was stopped halfway through uh, because of our environmental objections. Uh, it's doing a very good imitation of rainfall, which happens quite frequently. Uh, so the, 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 the possibility of this having an environmental, a negative environment was zero. I mean, it really was a very nice thing to do. Probably wouldn't even know down on the ground whether anything was happening at all. Mm. But this was stopped. Uh, a lot of good people, their work was just scrapped. So that's one of them. The second 1.7 million was uh, for doing a, a, a public opinion survey. And some people who didn't know anything at all about climate change and geoengineering asked a whole lot of other people what they thought about it and summarized all their conclusions. And they were very mixed. I mean, there wasn't a very positive thing. Some people thought it was okay and some people didn't. But that was another 1.7 million. And then the third bit was going to a climate model where the, uh, the people said that there was going to be lots of accumulation losses uh, and that somewhere between 10 and 90% of the spray would, would not be getting to the right place. Um, and they were using a very wide range of spray drop diameters. And if you think about having different sizes of particles in a turbulent airflow, the accelerations on them are going to be uh, different because of the different masses. And that means that the coalescence between them is going to be much more than if you had a, a uniform size of uh, a particle. Uh, like we're very well-trained infantry who are doing exactly the same movements at exactly the same time. So they had widespread of sizes. Uh, and they also didn't put any electrostatic charge on them. If you can charge the particles, uh, then they will repel each other and that will reduce coalescence. Mm -hmm. Now, saying somewhere between uh, 0 to 90 is actually quite wrong. Uh, my number is somewhere between 0 and 100. But provided it's you know the conditions where that's likely to be, uh, you can choose where it's going to be okay. So they, they gave this number of 0 to 90 without saying the conditions that affected that number, which would have been a very sensible question to ask. So it was, um, I think, a, a, an experiment designed to kill the project. I, and I don't know why they wanted to kill it, but there certainly was uh, a, a way to do that. Uh, and I have written all this to the person who ran this project and he hadn't replied to me. Yeah. Uh, forgive me if this is a, a, a naive question because I'm I'm not an expert in this. Um, but as, as I understand it, the the, the goal of, of of marine cloud brightening is to to increase the reflection of, yes. of sunlight to to reduce mm -hmm. solar warming. Uh, that, that's all well and good if you're if you're brightening the top of the cloud. Is is there any risk that brightening the bottom of the cloud might have an opposite kind of greenhouse effect? Uh, well. Uh, you're already just reflecting. Um, it's going back up again. Um, clouds do 
uh, at night when there's no sun coming in, they do warm, cloudy nights are warmer than, uh, than clear nights. And uh, there's no doubt that, that they will have that effect at nighttime. But we know that um, the, the, the daytime effect is more powerful than the nighttime effect. Uh, so it's a number that you want to understand. Um, the uh, reduction of ground on precipitation is because rain needs big drops, making the drop smaller will be um, reducing the probability of rain or delaying rain. Uh, drops in clouds grow slowly uh, and uh, when they get to 28 microns diameter, then they fall fast enough for rain to be produced. So we're deferring rainfall over the sea, which might mean that there's more rain left over when it gets to, that AMS gets to land. Uh, I think it's rather complicated, but I think the effects are not, not very large. Now, there's 20 bars across here going from a black to a white. And depending on your printer or your screen monitor, you've got to decide how many of those bars can you see to uh, see with the, where the, which direction the gradient is going. So if you put your hands up, uh, across the, the thing to narrow and just the gap between your hands. Most people need uh, three bars to be sure which end is, is getting whiter. Mm -hmm. And that means that you need 15 or 20% contrast change uh, to detect a contrast difference. It would probably be a bit more if you had a fuzzy edge. Uh, and our problem is actually a half a percent at the moment. Uh, we've got half a percent of the solar energy is got to be got rid of. Now we can only do it where there's uh, oceans uh, and we've got to do it in the right conditions. So we might need to say we'll have only a fifth of the uh, the world's surface area available. So that means we want to get a contrast change of two and a half percent. And we can't tell it's happened until we got to 15 percent. So I think the, the, the effects are going to be uh, interesting, but rather rather small to rather difficult to trace, mm. uh, and uh, it's the difference is is a lot less than the difference during the day, let alone day to night, let alone summer to winter. So those are, I think, reasons for being fairly optimistic. There's lots of of salt water being thrown up by the world's oceans from breaking waves. Lots of different sizes. Some of it will fall down fast, and some of it will stay there until it gets rained on. Does that make you a little, little bit less worried? I, I'd like to know all the worries that you've got. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it, it, it seems very optimistic to me. You did, you did mention that it has to be used in in tandem with with other, you know, emission reducing policies, yeah. carbon capture policies, and, and so on. Uh, well, just briefly, like, what other? Um, climate change mitigation strategies do you think have the most potential? Well, you, you've, you've got to do all the renewable energies that you can, which is, of course, where, where we came in in 1974. I would like to have a lot more done on tidal stream, particularly for the UK, because I think the Penland Firth would give us a lot more than, than uh, is credited at the moment. I think we have to get carbon out of the atmosphere, and at the moment that's very, very expensive. I think we, there will be ways of getting it cheaper, but it's still very difficult. My preference for that is uh, increasing the growth of plankton, marine plankton, phytoplankton in the world's oceans. Uh, most of the world's oceans are really wet deserts uh, with uh, a de desperate shortage of the key nutrients. And the, the one that is uh, missing in a lot of them is iron, and uh, if we could find ways of increasing the amount of iron in the oceans, uh, we should be able to get uh, a lot of the CO2 turned into biological mass, which would be gobbled up by sea creatures and end up on, on the seabed. Now, th there was a lot of experiments done this in about 15 years ago, I think 
12, 13 different experiments done in the Southern Oceans where they dumped in um, ferrous sulfate, ways of analyzing what happened to the sea after this. And they were very disappointed in the amount of carbon that was, was getting taken out. Uh, only one of the experiments uh, showed any provable uh, amount of carbon reduction. And I think the problem was they were putting in an awful lot for in a very small area, and they weren't then not looking at it for long enough. Uh, so it's like having a hungry child and you make it eat 100 bars of chocolate. I think the really measurement they were making was how clever the people were at measuring where the sea that they treated had moved to. I would like to try this again with iron going in as iron rather than uh, as ferrous sulfate. I want to observe it for years, for several years, so there's time for the phytoplankton to uh, change their breeding habits and migrate. And I want to try doing it by uh, using what's called cathodic protection back to front. Uh, at the moment, a lot of marine structures uh, in seawater are uh, prevented from corrosion by giving them a, a slightly negative voltage. It's called cathodic protection. If we switch the terminals around, we could make it anodic, accelerated corrosion. Mm -hmm. All right. And so what I've got is a design for uh, a ship with uh, a very large area of iron exposed to the sea and energy being generated by the movement of the ship through the water, which will deliberately corrode the iron. The main structure of the ship is made out of aluminium and plastics. Uh, so the iron isn't doing anything structural, it's just getting itself corroded in, at times and in quantities that we, we choose. Uh, and you can do this with angle iron, which is a very cheap um, source of iron. Are there any issues with adding more phytoplankton to the, the waters, I mean, from an environmental point of view? You know, there, are, uh, uh, there was a, an interesting experiment done by Chapel Russ George up in... Um, uh, the north, northeast Pacific, and he put some iron into the sea, and the the result on the salmon catch in the next five or six years was enormous. Uh, the, the extra gain came in two-year pulses. Um, if you look at the results of the salmon catch, and this is because it's, it takes two years for the salmon to breed and go out and then gobble up and then come back again. And the, the amount of carbon he was turning into salmon was <laughs> very, very high. Um, he caused a lot of, well, people accused him of doing this without permission. In fact, he claims that he got every bit of permission that he needed. And there was a police raid on his offices where they removed all the evidence that he got proper um, permission. But uh, uh, I think the people who tried experiments that failed are also a bit unhappy about him. Um, but uh, we, we need to understand that a lot better by doing, I think, a, a longer term experiment to see whether we can make um, all, all the extra fish that we need. Fantastic. So uh, I can send you the sketches of that, but maybe we need another, another meeting about the ocean line. Uh, if you look at the numbers of the, the amount of plant material that's growing from phytoplankton, it's it's just, you know it's really as much as all the trees and grass and crops on land. It's an incredibly large amount, and it happens very quickly as well. I think the the lifetime is about seven days. Hmm. Uh, so uh, I, I'm encouraged. By that. There's also some impressive things that you can do with uh, kelp in the sea. If you can give supply a bit of extra nutrients, you can get rid of a lot of carbon like that. You can get seaweed that sinks when you break past its little flotation bubbles. Um, so I, 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 there are there are ways of doing it, and all of them should be vigorously researched so that we can see if there's any chance of, of some of them working. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's that's absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, if you had one kind of output from COP26 as a meeting, what do you think that that would be? 
if it frightens a lot of people, then maybe it will have done a good job. But mm -hmm. I think that it will be as useless as all the other ones. I did go to Copenhagen, and I thought it was a complete waste of time and money. Mm. And, um, uh, I ought to be able to afford to go to Glasgow, and I might might go with Phil. I think you have to have different colour passes to get into different bits. But so you're not hopeful that people flying into Glasgow is going to solve global warming? Well, they will. Well, the evidence from this is very strong that, that uh, COP meetings increase CO2. <laughs> if you just had that information, that would be inevitable conclusion. Yeah. If you didn't know anything about anything else, statistician would say, yes, we can tell you the probability, and we'll tell you what it'd be like for COP29. <laughs> God. Uh, we just have two um, questions towards the end that we ask everyone. Um, the first is, if you had one piece of advice for someone who wanted to become a climate engineer, what would that advice be? Understand all the energy flows. Now, that works for every kind of engineering, not just climate. But if you understand in intimate detail every movement of energy from one part of the system to another, you understand almost everything you need to know about it. Every energy in any form. And, and finally, if you were a young engineer and you wanted to get into climate science or renewable energy, which technique or technology would you look at specialising in? So is there is there one technology at the moment coming developing that you it's think not is not a really fair question to ask me. You know what the answer is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> would it would you would you still go into marine cloud brightening? Yes, I would actually. I would might not have done to begin with, but the more I look into it, the, the more I like it mainly because it's so controllable. Uh, you can adjust what you want to do, and it is exactly like steering a vehicle uh, or riding a bicycle. Now, you may not know when you're riding a bicycle how you actually do it, but you can do it very well, and you can learn quite quickly how to do it. And if you did know how to do it and explain it, then you then know a lot of, a lot of other stuff as well. So it's the flexibility of time and place and season that makes this very attractive. Fantastic. So that, 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 anyway, um, the, the, any more questions? No, that's that's great. That's absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I've really, I've really appreciated your time here, Stephen. You're very welcome. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye bye. Bye. That's the end of the interview. I hope you found it interesting. I certainly did. We just want to say a big thank you once again to Steve Salter for joining us this month, and of course, thanks to you for listening. Enlighten, a science podcast is created by Andrew L, Patricia Cloyhofer, Shan Zhang, and Ollie Higgins for Sisma. We'd like to thank the CDT ISM for funding and support. The intro music for this episode was by Joseph McDade, and it's called Space is Invisible Mind Dust and Stars Are But Wishes. Thanks very much. I'll see you next time.